Welcome to Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. This podcast is designed for the adult medical speech-language pathologist. Most of our audience members work in settings such as acute care hospitals, private practice, outpatient hospital clinics, and inpatient rehabilitation hospitals. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. The content of this course is based on the research and experience of the presenters. The listener is responsible for researching to determine if the information and skills taught are appropriate for their clients, students, or patients. SpeechTherapyPD.com does not necessarily endorse, recommend, or favor the information shared, nor any of the claims, opinions, statements, offers, or services made by the presenter. Hello and welcome, everyone. My name is Renee Garrett, and I am your SpeechTherapyPD.com podcast host for Braidstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs. Before we get started, we have a few items to alert you to. Each episode is 60 minutes and will be offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Joining us tonight is Megan Battles-Parson, and Megan receives a salary from Methodist LeBonner Healthcare in the University of Memphis. She receives an honorarium for being a guest on this podcast. Megan, as far as non-financial disclosures, is a participant in ASHA's Leadership Development Program. My financial disclosures are that I am the host of this podcast and receive honorarium and other financial reimbursement from SpeechTherapyPD.com as the host and as a speaker on some of the webinars. And for non-financial disclosures, I am the current secretary of the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia. I also am a participant in ASHA's Leadership Development Program, as well as in SIG2 Neurocommunication Disorders. I think I didn't say that exactly correctly, but it's SIG2. I do know that. Now, without further ado, we welcome our guest, Megan Battles-Parsons, PhD, CCC, SLP, CDP. Megan is a medical speech-language pathologist and visiting assistant professor in Memphis, Tennessee. Through both roles, Megan actively mentors future speech-language pathologists in the clinic and in the classroom. As a certified dementia practitioner and participant in the American Speech-Language Hearing Association's Leadership Development Program, Megan also advocates for patient education and informed consent, ensuring individuals and families are empowered in their healthcare decisions. Outside of work, she treasures her role as a wife and mother to two energetic boys, ages one and four. Welcome, Megan. It's so great to connect with you again outside of our shared role at the LDP. And thanks for being here. Of course. Okay. Yeah, what we're going to talk about tonight is a big, I think, passion thing for both of us and that we both are very active and feel really passionate about not only the clinical aspect for students and clinicians in education, but also our patients. And so I know you've done a lot of work with clinical practicums for graduate students. And so just to start off, can you kind of walk us through how you structured your clinical practicums for graduate students? Yeah. So I first started taking students, I think like 
three and a half years ago. Um, and my first student, it was just, you know, the wild, wild west. We were just hanging on for dear life, trying to figure this out together. Um, and then I slowly but surely start like asking the students, like, what do you need from me? Or like, what are you wanting? Like, where are your fears? Where are your stress points? What are your strengths? The feedback I kept getting was that a lot of the stress points were not understanding the expectations, especially like what was being expected of them in that moment, that week, you know, with the setting. So I am an acute care hospital. It's a smaller hospital in Memphis. So I refer to it as like, we get the milder strokes, we get the dementias, we get the community illnesses, we're not getting your traumas. So we can kind of slow down a little bit compared to, and it's sometimes it's a little bit easier introduction to the hospital, I think for students than like jumping into like our level one trauma center or even our larger academic institution within our hospital settings. And so about that time, I think I started also like I became an adjunct professor at Memphis because I have my PhD and I was developing a course and I just had this light bulb moment. I was like, why don't I start reading my clinical practicum like a class? You know, they're in classes already. They have these expectations and assignments and whatnot. Like they're familiar with the structure. I think it just helped me with my ADHD brain to kind of like structure things a little bit better. So I just started with like creating an outline of like, what are the key concepts that like, once they leave here, I need them to understand if they were to transition into say, this might be the only clinical practicum they ever have in acute care. Like, what do they need to know? Or what, what foundational things do they need before they go to that higher level of care hospital? Um, And then I started kind of breaking it down and walking mentally walking through like the start of the semester. Like, how do I scaffold this so that they're not so overwhelmed with everything all at once, right? Like we're not jumping in and doing a full clinical swallow about day one. So I just like created that outline or that syllabus for the clinical practicum um, and and just like, I don't know, just kind of like structured it for them. And I got a really good feedback from the students. They're like, oh my gosh, this makes it so much easier. And the way I had it is like week one is just like, welcome to the hospital. Like buckle in, we're about to be running all over the place. You're going to be overwhelmed with just like everything. There's a lot of noises. You're going to be, you're going to get lost in the hospital a thousand times. Just like exist in the hospital. That's all I want you to do. And then like week two is more like, okay, well now we're going to start chart reviewing and we're going to chart review together and we're going to talk all about it with the expectation by that week three, you are starting to develop some level of independence in this chart review. Right. So like it just, it builds on each other. And then that week four, because we've already gotten through that, you're going to keep chart reviewing and now we're going to add on a new skill. The next week, I expect you to be a little bit more independent by it and just kind of keep adding it on each semester. Um, And I felt like that was a, I don't know. I'm sorry. Can you hear my kids screaming in the background? So I just apologize for that. We can, we can edit that out. (laughs) Also Um, real life. Yeah. That's that energetic four-year-old that I was talking about that I love so dearly. (laughs) Um, so yeah, that's, um, just kind of handing that to them. And they were like, Oh, this gives me a little bit of ease. It reduces that anxiety because now I'm only having to focus on like one core skill. And then by the time we're six weeks in suddenly, like they're doing a full clinical swallow about like, you know, cranial nerve, like the back of their hand, because we've already worked through each individual skill each week while they're observing everything else while it's happening. So no one got pushed off the pier straight into the water like mm-hmm. we did. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. And so they get to watch me do all of it. So they're still like, you know, getting that, that they're still getting the, um, the practice and still observing right. and able to ask the questions, but it's just what I'm asking of you is just very structured. Um, and I, and I'm, and the, the beauty of it is that I'm not like some people would say, well, you're limited, right? Like sometimes, sometimes you have students who are a little bit like slower to uh, uh, grasp the concepts. And some have you have, sometimes you have students who are just like in it to win it from the very beginning. And so then it's like, okay, well then we move through it faster. Or maybe we skip that second week of like, you've already mastered it by week one, or you've demonstrated like competency, then we can kind of move things along to where essentially you are, um, you know, doing things on your own a lot faster and you can kind of structure it around, uh, your setting, your students and your expectations. Um, I, when I first started doing this, my coworkers were, a li- they kind of laughed at me a little bit. They were like, what do you mean you have a syllabus? And I was like, well, let's think about it. Well, so, and let me explain. I'm in a setting where I'm the adult therapist in the hospital, but we also have a pediatric outpatient. So like all of my other therapists that I work with, the speech therapists are pediatric. Um, and so they were like, well, that would never work here. And I was like, but think about all of the skills that like you wish or the, the knowledge you wished you had when you first started. Yeah. So like one of my um, coworkers is a, um, you know, autism is a, a huge, she has a lot of patients with autism and she was like, oh, no one ever really taught me about like sensory like stuff and how to like work with that, those sensory needs and help deescalate the patient and help them regulate their systems. I wish I had gotten some information on that. So like, we, you know, maybe week six or whatever you focus on, okay, now I really want you to like, when our students start to like need that regulation or need that sensory movement break, I want you to jump in there and start helping them regulate their systems. And she realized like, maybe she doesn't need to go quite as structured as I do, but she actually started like implementing kind of like um, a book where she just gives them information. It's like, okay, this week we're going to focus on this. This week we're going to focus on that. Um, because the students at the end of the day, they want to learn, but sometimes it's really hard when they're being thrown into the deep end to Mm -hmm. figure out, you know, there's all this stuff in the water, which one is the actual life raft? You know, there's a lot of other things that, that they could be focusing on, but like finding that life raft and, and grabbing those skills as they need them. Well, and I think, too, for a lot of students, that expectation, it's fear of the unknown when you go into mm-hmm. your clinical practicum, especially the ones off campus, because mm-hmm. you have either heard something about that supervisor or you have uh, known someone who may be with them or you haven't. And then that's even worse, mm-hmm. right, because you don't have any feedback from another student or a, like, you know, future colleague that um, that was their experience. Um, so I think that's great because it does lay out expectations, not only for the student, but it gives you a roadmap too, because being a clinical um, instructor, whether it's a clinical practicum or a CF mentor, um, that's not an easy role a lot of times, particularly, particularly like you mentioned, if you have someone who isn't um, a top tier strong type A++, maybe they're a, um, you know, a student who does well and is adequate, but maybe isn't the the go-getter hardcore, or maybe mm-hmm. lacks even some self-confidence, because I think we've all seen that. Maybe they are a great, um, going to be a great clinician, but that self-confidence piece is huge. 
-hmm. when you're developing those skills because most of us have no clue what we're doing. And if you don't have um, a clear expectation, that is a really difficult thing to navigate. Um, And so one of the things I think we talked about and then I I saw um, some questions was themed weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, So you talked a little bit about that, um, having these expectations for weeks, but are there specific other like independence building activities that kind of contribute to the students' growth and their learning experience and their um, their confidence building? Um, so like with my, like the themed weeks I kind of picked out, especially for like the acute care is more like, okay, well, intro to the hospital, like they need to learn how to chart review and, and like understand Cerner because like, that's what we have. Um, they need to understand like how to do a cranial nerve exam, remember their cranial nerves. They need to understand, right. The different things that you can do during the bedside swallow, like speech language cog, what are the components we're doing in that? Um, and then we get into like the, um, modified bariums and, and goal setting and each week, like, right. So they're, they're just like, that's where they can like really put in their focus and worry about. Right. And so it's like, sure. You might be doing these other things while it's going on, but like, I'm, I'm okay. If you're not great at it at this point, because the expectation isn't there yet. But then once we get to that themed week, it's like, okay, we're all in on this topic this week. Okay. Um, and so now you really need to add, this is where I'm looking for you to show me your skills. Um, and really demonstrate your mastery of this topic. Um, and so it gives them, and then I um, I uh, also, because I have no chill and just kind of like take a project and scale it up all the way, I created this like a guide for them. Um, mm-hmm. And I think at last count, it was like 185 pages plus, which sounds, I will acknowledge, to someone on the outset, it sounds insane. But if I no, you if need I, to publish that. You need to publish that. No, right? Make some money. I, know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I probably I should. Um, but it's like 185 pages, but it it focuses on each topic because what I was starting to realize too is with these students, and, and I'm not saying that this is, is feasible or functional for every placement or every person, but even like pulling research papers or pulling like, um, hey, I really enjoyed this podcast um, on this topic, like give it a listen and on this this thing, um, this topic we're talking about, because what ends up happening is like these students are having these courses where they're expected to regurgitate information mm-hmm. and then we're expecting them to come to our place and to be able to apply it. But sometimes something gets missed or lost in the course to where suddenly they can't apply it because they've either forgotten about it or when they did learn about it, it just didn't click. And so I was seeing suddenly like it was like the wheels were turning and they were trying, my students were trying really hard for it to click and it just wasn't. And so the acute care guide that I created was kind of like a, um, a supplement where it originally started where I was just pulling papers of like, okay, well, here's a research article on vent management um, or like a kind of a review paper on vent management. I want you to kind of focus on this and and really get to learn about vents, right? Um, Or like for my friend who really wanted, you know, uh, my coworker who was really um, having trouble with sensory, like here's a research article on sensory behaviors of children with autism and here are like effective techniques to kind of help reduce it. 
Um, and I would just tell my students, like, okay, well, the goal for this week is to be on like bedside swallows. Here's a paper on the three ounce water swallow by Deborah Suter. Go ahead and read this. And that way you're kind of understanding like the information behind it. So when they're applying it, they're suddenly then getting this extra contextual information. So it's not like I'm just saying so. They have that background information because I want my students to in, implement evidence-based practice, right? I don't want them going to their next level and be, and then the suddenly the whoever's like, well, why did you do it that way? And I'm like, I don't know. That's just the way the person before me did it. Because I think that, that is a very bad thing for our um, our field. I think it needs to be, it, you need to understand why you're doing the behavior you're doing. And so like by pulling, that's a lot of what the acute care guide is, is it's kind of like pointing to different parts of the research in the field that says like, hey, this is why we do this. This is what it tells us. This is what research has found. This is who it works for. This is who it doesn't work for. Stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So that my students just don't just walk away and they're like, oh, hey, like, I don't, I don't know. I just, I give them three ounces of water and they, if they don't cough, like we're moving on, you know, because I mean, that's sometimes what they, they, they just expect or they understand. Yeah. Well, no, and I, you know, I was in the acute care when I first started the rural hospital too, and it became a little bit more um, suburban as we went mm-hmm. along because the the population exploded in the building and um, like in the in this community changed and so our demographic in the hospital changed. But yeah, I think that's a, a really great point because I can remember when I was doing my clinicals and skilled nursing and I, I still will say I was very fortunate in both my pediatric and my adult settings for off campus because I had such strong mentors and um, they were not afraid to kind of push me off the deep end, but in like the best way possible mm-hmm. because it was more like it, without a full on syllabus, but it was like, here's the expectation for this mm-hmm. week. I'm going to give you this challenging patient to kind of run with, but you've seen me and, mm-hmm. and, like uh, kind of don't be afraid because I want you to take the reins, but I'm going to be here with you. Mm-hmm. I'll be right mm-hmm. behind you. So you get this trach patient who, um, you know, is is going to be trached probably for eternity. And um, don't be afraid because, you know, the skilled nursing, they didn't have a respiratory therapist. Who yeah. Came. Yeah. So like, I need you to do X, Y, Z. You need to learn this because mm-hmm. if you're ever in a pinch, um, you know, I need you to understand what the parts of the trach are. Mm-hmm. They're afraid mm-hmm. when they cough. They're going to cough when you place a speaking valve. They're going to cough when you take it off. Don't jump. Don't freak out. Because if you freak mm-hmm. out, they're freaking out too. Yeah. So things like that, that, that I think a lot of people um, leave out and sort mm-hmm. of make the student, at least in my experience, um, make the student feel even worse I mean mm-hmm. grad school is like hellish in and of itself mm-hmm. it's just so yeah. dang hard like the yeah. coursework is hard um I was a returning adult student so I had a teenager and a preteen and a military mm-hmm. spouse and, and so I had enough stress without having to do all this other stuff without having clear expectations of the student yeah. um so I think that's really good because again you know th- it impacts not only the student's clinical practice, but then it's something they can take with them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's what I wanted is I, like, I kind of, you know, in, in 
in the PhD world, in the research world, you really talk about like the the family tree of researchers, right? Like you have this prolific researcher and he trained these people and these trained these people. I was like, well, I'm creating like my clinical family tree. And like, I, um, I want my students to be great. I know that they're going to be phenomenal uh, clinicians and I want them to have, cause I remember my CF and it was terrifying. And one of the things is um, the uh, Lydia Perkins, the SLP who trained me, she had a binder full of just research articles. And she's like, this is why Evan's blue dye testing is not as like effective as we want. This is why uh, palpation of the swallow, like through just touch, doesn't really give us the information we want. It's a good tool. You can use it, but you need to understand its limitations. And her giving that to me, I was like, this is exactly, this is my grail. This is what I wanted to just have and be like, okay, like this is what I need to know as a medical SLP to build my, my, my skill set. And the thing is, is like, you know, I'm four years into this and now I have like this, this document that just has a life of its own and it keeps growing. Um, but it, it doesn't have to start like that. It just started with like a one literal one page syllabus. And then like the students would ask me, okay, well, great. Like, do you have any more resources on that? And I'm like, oh yeah, like here's this, here's this. Um, let's Google it. Let's see what the resources are. And then I was just starting to like create like a, a just a folder on my desktop and then I was like, well, I can't just give them all these articles. Let me start like shortening it up into like little blurbs about each article and kind of pointing back to where they can pull it themselves. And then it just kind of grew a life of its own over the years with feedback from the students of like, hey, look, like I um, really didn't understand this concept. You know, how do I like, you know, let's can, is there any way that we can create like a cheat sheet or a, something that helps me integrate this information a little bit better or understand this information better? Um, and it just like, just kept going. Um, and so, you know, like I said, 185 pages is insane. Like I'm not advocating <laughs> that you like tonight go and start on this document, but I think regardless of the the pl- the placement that you were in it just think back about like when you were a student or even when you were a CF like what information did you cuz we all had I'm assuming that we all had that like um imposter syndrome and we were like oh my gosh I don't know what I'm doing I'm missing so much information like I thought I knew what this was help and like just start creating like those resources as a gift for yourself when you were a CF like what would you have loved to see um, asking your students like, Hey, where are you really struggling in this placement? What, where are you lacking confidence and what skill, how can I support you or how can I give you resources for that? Um, and whatever, whatever that looks like, I think your students would be really excited to have a clinician that's, that's pouring into them, um, and, and helping them, grow. Um, and sometimes, you know, when you're burnout with your work and your job and the job just isn't jobbing and giving the satisfaction, sometimes you can kind of turn that lens a little bit and, and pour into the student. And that can give you some of that, like, like helpful, happy feelings. Um, and so I kind of found that that was my way of giving back. And like, you know, when, when COVID got too much, I was like, okay, I can just focus on this to build in too. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, um, as an adjunct too, I, last semester was really um, tough. My, I had a really interesting group of students last semester. They were just, um, I don't even know the word, but 
it, it was sort of like I had this this waffle back and forth of like these overachiever. I mean, every yeah. SLP overachiever, yeah. But the <laughs> overachiever to the point of like one person had like a hundred and three percent in my class, and I took a half a point off a paper, and she like sent me this email this long about oh, why I shouldn't have taken this half a point, which dropped her to a one hundred two point eight. I had that student, and then I had student who never came to class or came periodically just didn't turn in assignments and was graduating and then wondered why at the end of the semester she had a D. And so it was, it was really Mm -hmm. interesting semester because even though this was the seventh time I, seventh semester I had taught this class, I felt like, okay, like, uh, I mean, it's grammar and writing. I think I've got Mm -hmm. that. I think I've got that part. Yeah. Interesting because I did have to sort of restructure some, um, we actually started last week. So today was uh, the holiday and we didn't have class today, but we had two classes last week. And I thought, you know, I think I'm going to have to do, like you mentioned, just like restructure some things that I'm mm-hmm. doing to kind of feel them out to see what their needs. Because the undergraduates of today are markedly different than the undergraduates of my time. And even the students that I've had four years ago or pre-pandemic, their learning styles have changed. The pandemic, um, you know, learning virtually. Now they're back in the classroom and it's, it's, it's interesting. It's just Mm -hmm. very, very different. And I think we're seeing that too in the, the newly graduated um, CFs and the um, Mm -hmm. senior clinicians in the graduate programs. Um, But even like moving into sort of like from that and translating that into like patient education, I've always been a huge proponent of patient education and I think it's just incredibly underrated and often underutilized at least that's what I've I've seen um and many people know if they listen to um, any of my webinars or even the podcast they know that I was a partial caregiver for my dad long before I became an SLP um I was 25 when my dad had a stroke and my dad had aphasia so um I never felt like we got the education as a family that we needed. I didn't really understand what any of the things physically occupational mm-hmm. therapy wise, speech wise, I didn't understand 99% of what any of that looked like until I went to graduate school. Yeah. Um, so I know you're doing some research on patient education practices. Mm-hmm. So like, I know for me, what my motivation is when it comes to patient education. So can you kind of speak to what, motivated you to take on that type of research and then also well we'll get to the second question we'll talk about them (laughs) (laughs) well so I really um had my first aha moment um so I kind of have a unique job in that like I started my CF actually in like a school setting um made it three months I knew I wanted to go to medical couldn't find a medical position um was coming off of maternity leave because I had my son 10 days after I graduated from master's. So it was like a thing, bang, boom. Um, I, yeah, it was rough. Uh, started my, started in the schools, like in the postpartum era. And then was like, I absolutely hate this. I have to get out. The school was lovely. The teacher, like everything was lovely. It just, I, I'm not a, a peds clinician. So I ended up getting into the school system or the, the hospital um, in January of 2020 as a CF. March 2020, COVID hits. And then we lost the other two SLPs 
in our facility because one moved and one had a baby. So I was the, as like a six month in CF, the only SLP at this hospital, my CF mentor, um, Leah is at the big hospital. So I still have access to her, but like, I was like having to do things on my own and like really got the opportunity to kind of like revamp some of the things that we do because I was the only one doing it. Um, but I remember like we didn't have any education when it came to like swallow exercises or anything like that. Like we were just telling people to do things and just like walking out of the room and be like, okay, keep doing those. See ya. Um, <laughs> and, and so like, obviously very effective. Yeah. Um, and then I remember my first aha moment about patient education um, was when I was seeing a patient in the ICU, he'd just been extubated and had like read through the patient's chart and saw that the patient had actually just been admitted to her our academic institution, like two weeks before, um, he had a dysphagia and was discharged on thick and liquids. And then he shows up at our hospital, respiratory distress, um, reintubated. And so I'm, um, uh, he was extubated. I'm, I'm seeing it. And I'm like, Oh, Hey, like I saw that you were on thick and liquids. Have you been drinking those? Like while you were out of the hospital? And he goes, Oh no, I haven't. And I was like, Oh, why not? And he goes, well, I didn't, I didn't know where to find them. Right. So there was like no education and, and through probably like likely no fault of, of, of anyone, it just wasn't really thought about. Right. And like SLPs, like we're not really uh, like made aware that a patient is discharging. Sometimes it happens before you can do anything. Right. So, but this patient very clearly had had that lack of education um, about like, oh, hey, you have, you need to get thickener now. This is where you, where you need to get it. So like, I was like, this will never happen again. I'm going to, I'm going to start doing all the things. I'm going to educate my patients off the wazoo. Um, they were going to be the most <laughs> on their like dysphagia, their swallow function, whatever. And as I'm like typing up, like, you know, um, that Jim Carrey meme where he's just typing on the computer, I'm just like going in, typing up all the things. And then I have a moment of like, well, do I even know that this is going to be effective? And I was like, I actually don't know how to provide patient education. And I kind of took a step back and I was like, I was never taught explicitly like what patient education is, how to educate a patient, um, how to ensure that they understand how to ensure mastery, prolong, like all the things that we look for in research, right? That the, that it was effective, that it, it generalized, it, it had continuity of, of, of benefit. I was like, I don't know how to do any of this. And then I start looking around and there's nothing like there's mm -hmm. no like, and, and a lot of times we're just like wanting to throw a sheet of paper at it and be like, Oh, I educated them. I educated them all the way. And then the patient, you know, there's um, the patient doesn't understand the material because either the, the font is not in a good, like a good size. There's too much wording. There's not enough wording, too many images, not enough, right? Like their healthcare literacy is not there. Their actual literacy is not there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was just like, oh my gosh, like this is not a simple fix. This is something that like, I actually need to really take a deep dive into um, and figure out for myself what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. um, because I don't, I don't know what to do. And I, I feel like, you know, we, we argue that like, Oh, it's just teach back. Like you teach them and then they teach you back. And like, we're also dealing with patients who have cognitive deficits. Yes. Who literally like don't have the short-term memory or like their executive functions are poor. Like it's just not there. And so I started a systematic review. We have the university of Tennessee health sciences center 
and they have a lab librarians there. And one of my friends is actually like works there and got her master's through there. And I was like, Hey, do y'all happen to like do systematic reviews or like help people out? She's like, we do them all the time. What's your topic? And so they were able to like do a lot of like the research, like pull a lot of the articles. And I'm working with the team of SLPs in the, in the community to look at this topic of like, what are patient education practices within the acute care setting? Right. Cause now we've got this issue of like, I'm only with you for two or three visits. If right. that, like nowadays, a lot of these patients are going home because like our hospitals uh, is pushing this home first initiative because SNFs and LTACs and all that insurance just isn't paying. So patients are having to go home before they can go anywhere else. Well, that means that they're likely not getting a, a SLP caregiver or anyone interacting with them for a minute because in Memphis, at least like our SLP home health has been really short staffed. So there is no one to follow up with them. So like it used to be that like acute care OL just like they'll they'll learn about in the next setting. Well now like in the current 2024 healthcare landscape, that's not a thing anymore. Like we're exactly. a one stop shop. We have to set you up for long term success by the time you leave acute care, which is wild in and of itself. But like now you're putting professionals who like have no actual training in patient education. So we're working on a systematic review to figure out like what are practices and, and we're having to look outside of like speech. So we're looking at like heart failure, diabetes, like COPD, like a lot of the big things that they're trying to educate and reduce your 30 day readmission rates. They've mm-hmm. got some really good like studies on uh, education practices in the hospital. But then I was also like, well, what are other SLPs doing? Like surely I'm not the only one who's like acknowledged that suddenly like, Oh, I actually don't think I know how to do this. So I did a survey study. So you guys might have seen me bombarding like like SIG 13 and a couple of Facebook groups, like trying to get some answers on like clinical practice patterns. Like what are SLPs doing to get experience and understanding of what patient education is? How to ensure that you're actually educating the patient, which is your goal, how to ensure all these other things. Are are there classes you're taking? Did you learn about it in school? Just to kind of get a sense of like where we are in the field. And so I'm in the process of analyzing that data. So I'm a visiting assistant professor through Memphis. And so like using their IRB, but then also like, you know, Methodist connects with, I think we connect with UTHSC. So I'm like kind of just doing this as a clinician because I was like, well, these are a little bit easier studies as a clinician to conduct. And I have the experience with my PhD. So like, let's figure it out and see what's happening. Um, so I hope to have the the results of that, those studies here within like the next six months or something, but. Now, are you guys affiliated or uh, like a stroke magnet hospital at all? We're with DNV. So okay. we are a primary strokes. I should know this. Yeah. Um, Cause yeah. we have no, stroke education. I think we're no, primary strokes. Total, total reason was I, same with the hospital that I was at um, previously. Um, and so we were, we have this stroke educator who's typically in the nursing side of things. And so I've seen the gamut run of a nurse educator who would physically like schedule time with a patient when I was in IPR or in acute care. We had one stroke coordinator who would schedule time and, and treat it like an appointment, treat, treat it mm-hmm. like part of the therapeutic process. And then I've seen other people who are like, Oh, they're at their MRI. Great. I'm going to go drop this booklet off that's um, created by the hospital. And and again, like you mentioned, um, and this is another like big proponent of mine is color pictures, you know, font size. We've got hearing impaired patients. We've got cognitively impaired patients. We've got visually impaired patients. Mm-hmm. Are you giving them access to what they need? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you've got people with uh, low health literacy or limited health literacy and not any mm-hmm. fault of their own, but we're not accessing those patients if we're not asking mm-hmm. the right questions. And I think that's a great point that you make because this was more like an on-the-job training thing for me based mm-hmm. on where I worked and where, I, like even where I grew up, because mm-hmm. where I grew up um, was a more suburban the big industry was uh, the shipyard. So like that's where my dad worked. So all my friends, for the most part, their parents were shipyard workers in some way, shape or another. Um, There's a lot, I'm on the East coast um, of Virginia. So we have a lot of ports here. We have a lot of shipyards here. We have Mm -hmm. big, small ones. We have military ones. We've got the largest Naval base in the world. So um, Mm -hmm. I say all that to say, we have such a wide variety of, folks and need. And so I think one of the things I did early on was I I took a counseling for SLPs course. And I think Mm -hmm. that was, I thought of it as counseling. It's almost like, I don't know, I'm thinking like marriage counseling, like what is Mm -hmm. this? But it was, that is exactly what it was about was using counseling techniques like active listening, Mm -hmm. um, supportive listening, feedback to the patient, not just having them do a teach back, but making mm-hmm. sure that, okay, maybe we need this in Braille. Maybe we need to get an interpreter um, for ASL for their ASL dialect. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, you know, a lot of times we hear we have to use the hospital-based interpreter. Or we're required because of the stroke magnet program to use the hospital-based uh, educational information that's been formatted mm-hmm. ninth grade education. And that's mm-hmm. not always effective for the patient and it's not effective and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's not a one size fits all. And it can be incredibly frustrating. And we were talking about this earlier of like, even as a PhD, but even as a clinician, you know, when you consider that, you know, in both of my careers, they are largely educational. And at no point have I taken an education course to understand, you know, didactic education or how to ensure understanding or the difference between like knowledge and performance and mastery and, and all of that. Like, I have a master's in psychology. So I actually took those courses and through their graduate programs, they require you to take these teaching courses. They require you to teach before you graduate with your PhD so that you have that experience and understand how to craft a course so that it uh, it meets the needs of the student and accurately or adequately assesses the content. Um, but I felt like, um, and, and, you know, I don't, I think it's, not to, I don't want to, for this to be viewed as a, a bash against the University of Memphis, because I, I love that program I'm teaching in that program. I think it's it's more of like, I don't know if it's an ASHA thing or just the state of higher education where we're like as PhDs, we're pushing the research, but we're not pushing like this large area where like we are teaching future clinicians and like, are we wasting our time standing up there just like talking at people when we could actually be working on creating these really good courses that fully like connect with the student. Um, and I think that that's what we're starting to see, especially as like more Gen Zers get into to the classroom setting and these COVID patients, uh, these um, post COVID students and in the, as our, our patients get older and they tend to be more like Gen Xers, millennials and stuff like that. Like, the way that we connect with them is it has to be different than the way that we connect with boomers or the silent mm-hmm. generation. Yeah. They're 
they're just expecting different things. And I think we, whether through like a a course on patient education or adding that into counseling or through an actual education course within the PhD program, for our course, for our field to be so education-based, it is a large glaring component that is missed because we are educating everyone we come in contact with, no matter what we're doing, right? So like as a SLP, I'm educating the patient on their diagnoses. Like I'm pathologizing and and telling them what, what they're doing. I'm educating family. I'm educating the nurses and the physicians about like, mm-hmm. hey, look, this is why we don't thicken at bedside, thicken liquids at bedside. This is why we, you know, in, in an acute care setting, this is why we need to do a modified first. You know, this is why, what I think is happening. Um, but if we're not able to effectively communicate and educate that to people, it like, what are we doing? You know, mm-hmm. it, we're, we're, we're kind of like selling ourselves short. We're selling, we're not uh, actively helping patients and we're not allowing for informed consent because a patient cannot consent to something they don't understand. Um, and I think that is a huge component that we are missing is it, that we can like really quickly be like, oh, yeah, we're going to do a modified this, 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 this. But unless we ensure that they actually understand what that procedure is, that's not really informed consent. That's just, oh, OK, like they said I needed this. So I don't know what mm-hmm. it is. Uh, yeah, and and then- that's a great that's a great point, because that's the old model of. Um, even like with my in-laws, I would drive me nuts because they go to the doctor and the doctor would change their PCP would change their meds Mm -hmm. and they went to the cardiologist and the cardiologist changed their meds. And now they're Mm -hmm. not PCP is doing this and the Mm -hmm. cardiologist is doing this and no one's on the same page. And it's like, stop doing it just because they said it, like ask the questions. Mm -hmm. But that is like you said, fundamentally and generally generationally, not who they are. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it, it uh, informed consent is huge. And a lot of people mm-hmm. are talking about it. I feel like for me, I don't know that I, I guess I did know because I started doing um, fees as a um, brand new, I was a CF when I went to school for fees. And when I started mm-hmm. passing the scope and like getting um, all my things, my checklist done, mm-hmm. and informed consent was something that we had to do because that was not something that was covered by the consent to be admitted Uh we had to go through and explain the procedure and if it was a patient with a cognitive impairment we had to make sure that we had either the next of kin or whoever the poa um power of attorney Uh one we had to have all those things all the way together and if you called them on the phone say they were a child out of state or the spouse was not able to come in that day or whatever you had to have a witness on the phone Uh and so I learned that in a sort of a different way. But again, I think when you learn it early on, it does change how you practice or hopefully it sticks and changes how you practice Mm -hmm. to become more aware and more mindful that the patient's bill of rights that hangs on the wall in Mm -hmm. our hospital says they have the right to say no. They have the right to review. They have the right to, um, not undergo further testing if that's the way that they want to go. And I've seen so many times that a lot of clinicians still try that coercion technique of, but you need honey thick liquids, mm-hmm. but you need this, mm-hmm. but you need that. Well, who is that benefiting in the end? And so I think that was a really good um, point of looking at what your research is looking at and sort of trying to figure out what motivated you um, to do that and then kind of what what you aim to answer um, 
through the study and is it kind of gearing towards education and informed consent or a little bit more than that? Does that make sense? Um, right now it's just geared towards patient education. Um, but I, I think like, as I'm getting into this a little bit more, like I really find like the whole like healthcare literacy component fascinating. Um, I, I jokingly tell my graduate students, I was like, well, if I had my own program, uh, like we would all like have SLPDs. Like, I think I, I will argue that I believe that our program, especially if you're going to specialize like in, in an area, like I think an SLPD, we need more time. We need more classes. We need more education. Um, and I think like a healthcare literacy class or like a public policy or public health class is really necessary um, to, to kind of focus on, on that. Um, the informed consent is something that I've just been gradually like kind of, you know, listening to people and especially like, you know, listening to like, you know, everybody got on TikTok during the pandemic, but like listening to people who have like had their trust violated by healthcare professionals because, you know, they either didn't give conform informed consent or, you know, um, or or a lot of the things is, is too, like as professionals, we have to be aware that informed consent is continuous throughout the, the whole process, right? Yeah. Like, so for example, like during my modifieds, I'm talking to my patient and say, okay, this is thin barium. Um, it's going to taste a little chalky. I like literally have the same spiel every time. It's going to taste a little <laughs> chalky, kind of like uh, Pepto-Bismol or Mylanta. Um, I need you to take a teaspoon. And then I go to, you know, we walk through that and it's like, okay, this is mildly thick. This is going to be about the consistency of a smoothie. Um, I need you to do this. And then going in and then I even give a barium tablet. This is a tablet. There's no medication in it. It's just a pill version of what you've already been given. And some of my patients say, I don't want to take the tablet. And I say, okay, well, so this tablet will allow us to see that when you take your medication, you know, and sometimes you complain that that pill gets stuck in your throat. This will allow us to see like what's happening. It is, is that pill getting stuck or where along the process is it getting stuck? And they say, you know what? I, I really don't want to. I know it's going to get stuck. It makes me uncomfortable. I say, okay, you know what? Not a problem moving on. They have given me consent at every step of the way. And at mm -hmm. the point that they are no longer consenting, moving on. You're like, I have enough information. We can kind of make some guesses about what's going on with that tablet based on the physiology from the other trials. But like at the end of the day, like their, their autonomy is, is important. Um, and I, I can't push through that. I even do it with like, you know, walking through my clinical swallow evals and like, you know, patients are like, why, like when I'll do a cranial nerve and I'll have them like doing on their faces, I always say before, okay, I'm going to ask you to do what may seem like some silly things with your face. Mm -hmm. Um, what I want to do is I want to see if the structures responsible for speaking and swallowing are moving the way that we expect them to. And then every time the patient's like, oh, okay, perfect. Like, it, sure, you ask me to do weird things, but now suddenly it makes sense. And I don't feel like you're doing things to me. I feel like I'm doing things with you. Mm -hmm. And if they say no, then I usually just say like, you know, patient decline to participate, no overt asymmetry, right? Like I can still get information yeah. um, without like violating their autonomy or their trust. Um, because the fact of the matter is like a lot of these people have had negative experiences. Um, and, and I don't want to add to those negative experiences. Yeah. And I think, especially when you've worked in a more rural setting, we see that because, um, you know, a lot of the patients that I worked with early on, because I, when I first came to the health system I was working at, um, I was working in the big trauma, the level one and the level two trauma, um, mm -hmm hospitals. And then I started covering this other more rural and that's where I sort of landed. 
um, because it was closer to home and whatever. Um, And quite frankly, at the point where I was trying to cover like a six building campus by myself and running all over the place like a nut job and couldn't get anything done. Yeah, I'm going to go to a rural place where I feel like I can do something affect some change. So um, I say all that to say that I had such an interesting um, caseload mix, particularly early on, um, because I saw things that weren't really typical in the general population. But then also I had some some patients who were mistrustful of me um, because of me being a white female. And I had to take myself out of that equation. And a lot of times I don't think people who haven't had that experience or worked in a more rural setting with a lot of people um, whose backgrounds are markedly different. Um, and I think you can get that at a bigger hospital, but I don't know yeah. that it's, it's, you're so much more, you have so much less time. And like mm-hmm. when I was there and I had nine patients versus 25 by myself, mm-hmm. I could spend more time with a, a non-patient caseload mm-hmm. in acute care because, you know, that's yeah. not really typical, but mm-hmm. I got more perspective out of mm-hmm. that. And yeah. so, you know, when you're thinking about um, kind of the outcomes of the research projects and just how that impacts the field overall, you know, I think we can kind of tie those two things into the education mm-hmm practices for both patients and graduate students and kind of seeing how those really intertwine. Yeah. So I think the biggest piece I feel like is sometimes our, I don't know if it's our field. I don't know if it's academia. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I think sometimes the assumption is, oh, well to educate someone, I just need to say it to them. I just need to say it out loud. They soak it in and then we move on. I've educated them. And I feel like that's not a given, Um, and especially as we're working with um, different generations of people, people from different cultural backgrounds, people with different levels of education. Um, You know, it's like, for example, like my hospital, um, like primarily, uh, like my patients are 60 plus and they're primarily, you know, black. Um, So like different, like different expectations, different life experiences, like it's really presumptuous of me to walk in there and be like, oh yeah, I educated them. Like I told them and they're good. They're moving on. Um, When that's, you know, there's so many layers to be considered um, that I'm just like glossing over and just assuming that, you know, handing them a sheet of paper is going to be enough. Um, Same with students. You know, we are getting students at Memphis. We're getting students from all over the country. We're getting um, second degree or second career um, we're getting fresh out of undergrad. We're getting international students, mm-hmm. um, different life, ex- like life experiences, perspectives, whatnot. And to just like carte blanche, like throw education out there and say, okay, here you go. Here's, here's your education that you paid for. Like go, go do things with it. Like it's really presumptuous. And I think that there needs to be a really conscious effort on the part of the professor, on the part of the clinical supervisor, on the part of the clinician to invest in themselves and their patients and their community to find ways to connect with others. Cause that's what education is, right? Like it's the mm-hmm. transfer of knowledge for me to you so that we can connect and we're giving you power for yourself, power for the clinician and the student or like the graduate clinician, the student to learn and master a topic, power for the patient and the family to understand what is happening to them 
um, mm-hmm. and grow and, and treat it to the, the best of their ability. Um, and that, I don't think that can be done just by like throwing things at people. I think we need to really have a systematic, conscious movement where we learn how to educate. We learn how to connect in a meaningful powerful way. We're not there yet. Like, sure. Like my little study, I like, these are just random studies, but I hope, and that's in part why when you reached out to me about like doing a podcast, I was like, this is kind of like a, not the soapbox I saw myself on (laughs) at the end of the day. I think I feel like I connect with people better. And I feel like I build rapport better because it allows me to see the patient, to understand who they are, where they are, see the student, understand where they are and, and adjust like what I have for them, Mm -hmm. which values them and, and raises and puts them at the forefront. Um, and I think that sometimes even with speech language pathologists, I think sometimes, you know, we get accused of being ableist or, you know, trying to like push people into categories. And I think it's largely because like we make these assumptions and we just tell them to do things and, you know, we're, our education isn't being crafted and our sometimes our treatments aren't even taking into account who the person in front of us is. So like that's that's just one of those big things where I just like just want to shout it. Be like, hey, like we we need to do more to to be the helpers that we all wanted to be. Otherwise we wouldn't have gotten into this field. Right. Well, even if you back up, you know, in, in talking about your psychology background, but even like basics you know, psych 101, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, safety, shelter, food, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're taking someone out of their environment, you've moved them into, maybe they have shelter, but it's not their shelter. Now you're altering their food. Um, Depending on what their background is and where they came from, they may not feel safe. So you've already Mm -hmm. fundamentally set them up for not feeling whatever it is you're about to throw down anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> because their basic three needs are, you know, for safety, shelter, and food are not being met at the most basic level. Um, and then we come in and, and especially with the food, how many times have you gone in and done them, you know, and I think again, when you've done instrumental exams, your perspective changes from day zero to day, by the time you've done five, 600 modifieds or yeah. 600 um, fees or combination of both your perspective is at least mine is so markedly mm-hmm. different than it was when I just had the, the fundamental brain knowledge of the mm-hmm. anatomy and physiology and um, how that's supposed to translate versus looking at the patient holistically and seeing what their need was, their goal was their family, mm-hmm. their caregivers goals. Um, and yeah, shared decision, social determinants of health, all of those things mm-hmm. to our practice. And again, yeah. as many times as I've, as I've talked about both of those things, whether it was on the podcast, whether it was a webinar, whether it was at a um, conference, whether it was to my colleagues, it still is not widely being practiced. Mm-hmm. So I think that is um, kind of the thing that leads me to um just future approaches to education within the field and then looking at, you know, your research and what implications that should hopefully trickle down, um, you know, not again, not only to the clinicians, mm-hmm. but to the patients and their families. Mm-hmm. And I think too, like understanding education 
is inherently patient-centered care, but it's also evidence-based practice, right? Like how can we say that we're using evidence-based practice if there's no evidence on like what, like how to do patient education. And especially like we're missing the whole component of like, I just started this working with like people who have swallowing disorders, who have functioning, for the most part, functioning cognitive and language abilities. Like, you know, that doesn't even get into like, how can individuals with language disorders or cognitive disorders have informed consent? How do we ensure effective education? And like, there are times where like, I have to like part of our documentation, it talks about like um, education, you know, who did you educate? Like, what was the response? And a lot of times, like, for example, with my dementia patients, I just have to be like clinician informed, unable to determine level of understanding based on current mental status, right? But like, mm-hmm. sometimes like with with language disorders, you know, how do we, and someone's got like a receptive language disability, cognitively, they're good, but like, how do we we're working with these patients and, and sometimes their caregivers aren't in the room or their loved ones aren't there. So like how it's just this big area where I think it's just, it's just, we haven't gotten there yet. Um, I have faith and I really am uh, like hopeful that we will get there um, and that it will be important and we'll push through. Um, But, you know, we're just unfortunately not there yet. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's, um, just a lot of room for growth. And I think, again, like you said, a lot of room for researchers to have that more um, implementation science, right? So mm-hmm. that research that is able to be implemented by the clinicians, because, again, that's that's been a, a gap for a number of years, mm-hmm was that even, you know, when we were in school and looking at the some of the research that came out and it was like, oh, that's a cool technique, but I have no idea what the heck, how yeah. the heck, who the heck, and <laughs> how am I going to get this $20,000 piece of equipment that you have to, to yeah. use it on Monday when I go back to work? Yeah, exactly. And even, um, even like with our fees, again, when I first started, I was in inpatient rehab and, and covering LTAC. So we had um, fees, we had two we had two fees mm-hmm. it was almost 15 years ago. Well, 14 years ago. Mm-hmm. So um, then I went to acute care and we had zero. And it was like, yeah, what? but it took like five years of that being in the capital budget and like having a boss who was supportive and, and fought for it. And then when I went to outpatient, having zero support and not mm-hmm. to um, get any of that in the capital mm-hmm. budget or even fought for as a viable piece of equipment. And when you're dealing with your head and neck cancer patients and you're not having immediate access to instrumentals, that's, I mean, that's another one for like implementation. Exactly. Like biofeedback is a powerful, powerful form of education. Like I use uh, modifieds, like all, you know, we do outpatient modifieds. I mm-hmm. see people come in and they are like complaining about globus sensation. And almost immediately I'm thinking, okay, it might be esophageal. Like we need to look <laughs> down there. And then when it is esophageal, I spin that screen around and I show them that their throat is empty. And then I walk them through the sensation of the esophagus and why they're feeling that reference sensation. Just that extra step of education using the biofeedback from the instrumental 
helps them. And they're like, oh my gosh, I have been, you know, it just feels like it's in my throat, but now that I know it's in my esophagus, you know, I'll drink a little bit. I need to go to the GI, right? Like they can connect and they can understand their body on a whole different level than me just like being kind of casually like, oh yeah, there's nothing there. You're fine. Like your swallow is good. Go right. Like that's dismissive. Whereas Mm -hmm. when you take the second and you step back and you say, okay, I really understand your concern. And I want to tell you that your swallow looks great. Like your oropharyngeal swallow looks phenomenal. However, I do understand that you have this globus sensation. I'm not seeing anything here. However, that doesn't mean that it's not further down. Let me tell you about what the esophagus does. That's Mm -hmm. what three minutes of your day, but now your patient goes from, well, I just wasted my time getting the study and was kicked out of the room and made to feel like an idiot versus like, oh my gosh, like, you know, now I understand. And I feel like somebody finally believes like that I'm going through something. Mm-hmm. And like, that is such a powerful shift and just using your tools to educate someone about like a, a function of their own body. Yeah. Especially when it comes to swallowing or even um, like with voice and I'm not a voice specialist mm-hmm. by any stretch. I'm more of a voice referral, but like I'll refer you because yeah, exactly. I can, do some, I can do some education and stuff, but yeah. if you haven't been to the ENT, I'm not touching you with a 10 foot pole. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially like otolaryngologist, that's mm-hmm. who you need. You need to go there first. Same with swallowing in the outpatient mm-hmm. setting. I need you to get uh, um, mm-hmm. an instrumental first. Mm-hmm. Even if it's been six months since your last one, you need a new one because yeah. we don't know what's happened in those six months and mm-hmm. you could have had something change. Um, and again, educating as to why and not just saying, I need you to do this and you will mm-hmm. do it or X, Y, Z. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, we've, we've gone over an hour, which is great. Oh, okay. I don't <laughs> Sorry. See, I don't see, no, 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 that's great. Um, I don't see any questions in the chat box right now. So if you mm-hmm. all have any questions, um, please put them in the Q and A or the chat box. Um, but you know, in the meantime, Megan, I, I think, um, I think you and I both knew kind of, <laughs> we, we've talked before. And so I think we yeah. both that. This, these topics were priority for both of us. Mm-hmm. And I think it's great because general, generationally, as we move forward, like you said, with some of our patients and in these different categories, these, you know, we're used to beginning my career, I was getting the boomers and the silent mm-hmm. generation. And now I, you know, the youngest patient on my caseload um, a month ago was uh, 29 TBI mm-hmm. patients. Oldest was 91. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm. I was seeing everything across across the gamut, and so you have to adjust um, that mindset and making sure mm-hmm. you're looking at those generations and what their expectations are for things like informed consent, mm-hmm. decision making. So, thank you for um, for bringing that up. Um, I think too the the and especially like what you were saying with the counseling like those classes are important because we want to make sure that when we're educating like our message is actually getting across the way we intended and we're not just like you know being really like sometimes the tone alone can can be enough to derail the education so like there are just layers that like we really have to take a step back and like figure out what what is you know what how are we being successful when are we being successful and and what um what, what could make us more successful. Um, so I always like to like, you know, um, our, 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 my outpatient clinic that I, I'm about like 
10, 15% of the week. And they um, really pushed, like, we should always ask our patients at the end of the session, did I address all of your concerns? Was there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't talk about? And those are really great moments for me to realize, like, maybe where I missed the ball on education, or maybe where we needed to connect with the patients a little bit more. Um, so maybe even just even simple strategies like that of just asking your patient, like, hey, mm-hmm. What, what do you want? What do you want to know about? Like, where, where are you confused? And sometimes, you know, if, if they've had those negative healthcare experiences, they just may be interested for the, the, the situation to end and, and don't want to keep going. And that's fine, right? You're not going to cure healthcare in the system overnight, but like giving them the opportunity. And as you continue to give more and more, as everyone continues to give the patients more and more opportunities to voice their concern and, and to speak to us. Um, and ask questions, I think that's going to be what really helps us. Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. Thank you so much, Megan, um, for being here tonight. I really appreciate you coming on and, and certainly you're welcome back anytime. Thank you again for being here and we look forward to seeing you again. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete address in your account profile prior to the course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to be reflected on your ASHA transcript. Thank you for joining us at today's podcast. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.